this is Mike Neglia, and you're listening to episode 39 of the Expositors Collective podcast. Now, this interview between myself and Justin Thomas is yeah very interesting. Um, he is a very thoughtful, um, intelligent man, um, somebody who looks at the world slightly different than I do, um, and most of us, perhaps. He's a deep thinker. He does deep dives. He takes long baths. <laughs> and um, just the way that he approaches uh, the preaching ministry and then even the act of preaching itself is really provocative and really will give you some food for thought. So I know that you're going to enjoy this episode. I briefly want to remind you about our upcoming training weekend at Maranatha Chapel in San Diego on April 5th and 6th. Uh, It's going to be a great time. We've got some great main session speakers lined up and then also um, a lot of qualified and experienced coaches and mentors for you as well. More details available at expositorscollective.com. All right, here's Justin. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm Mike Neglia, and I'm here with Justin Thomas. How are you? Good. I'm good. Thank you. Um, we're in Marietta at the same time. Why are you here? Um, I'm teaching a class for the Bible College on sex and gender. Okay. Um, that sounds fantastic. I'd love to talk to you about it, but your class is starting in a few minutes, yeah. so we don't have time to get all the details. Sure. Um, so how long have you been, I guess, teaching in a college setting before we move into preaching? Yeah, actually, uh, my involvement with one Bible college or another has basically been continuous since I was a student. Has it really? Yeah, even after I graduated from the sister school of this one up in Seattle, Seattle um, Calvary Chapel Bible College, I continued to take courses until they asked me to teach one. <laughs> so I've just kind of always been in yeah. that place. Um, now it's um, 12, 13 years. Really? Mm-hmm. Now this is an unfair question, but what do you prefer, teaching a, a, a class or preaching a sermon? To be honest, I like them both so much that still my ideal scenario is to pastor my church in Seattle, and then there's a Jesuit institution in our neighborhood, and yeah. I'd love to teach there as well. Really? That's, that's my dream scenario. Okay. Yeah. Do they know yet? No. <laughs> I, it'd be, I will ruin my chances if I spring this too early. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Um, okay. Hey, so um, we always ask people, like, what was your first mm-hmm. time teaching the Bible? What was your first sermon? Yeah. Uh, why don't you walk us through that and help us to get to know you more by explaining more about sure. your setting? So when I was um, in the school in Seattle, uh, I got to know pretty well the um, the staff of the church that was running the school, Calvary Fellowship. And so I had an internship and then a part-time facilities job. And it was sometimes, sometime during that period that a sister church invited me to come and teach a Sunday morning. And so uh, the passage was 2 Kings chapter 6, which is where the lepers are, are recognizing mm-hmm. in the city is death. If they sit still, they're going to die. And so they decide to turn themselves over to the enemies. Um, and they find this kind of veritable smorgasbord that God has provided by scaring away all the enemies. Um, and so that was the, that was the first time I taught adults anyways. And, uh, it was 18 minutes. No way. Yeah. No uh, way. And, and that caught me off guard. I hadn't really thought about time, but the service <laughs> ended you know, almost 30 minutes early that day. Yeah. Um, so that was the first time. Yeah. That n- no one has ever said that. <laughs> I couldn't say it since. Yeah. I, I yeah. promise. 
but but yeah, that that very first time was short. Yeah, the I mean, generally in a lot of these interviews, people's first sermon is sixty minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Danny Keating talked about how it was, uh, I think, an hour and twenty minutes. Yeah. Um, why why was your short? I think you know it was because it was a back pocket sermon. Okay. It was something that I had loved for a long time, thought okay. through a lot of time, and I knew what I wanted to say, and I just said it. Yeah. And still. Even though now I usually preach for a solid 55, I'm not much for embellishment. I cover a lot of ground, but mm. I, don't, I, go, I don't go necessarily very deep. I'm not tremendously applicational in a specific sense. Okay. Um, I stay pretty close to the text. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so you got up there, and then 17 mm-hmm. minutes in, you realized mm-hmm. you had nothing left to say. Yeah. You prayed for a minute. Yeah, and at the time, you know, I you when you preach for a long time, you start to learn what sermon time functions like. Yeah. You feel every five-minute chunk, you know. But at the time, I had no sense. So I didn't know it was short until I was told it was short. I didn't, uh, I didn't really think about it. I just said what I wanted to say. Um, it, was, it was relatively well-received. The church was very sweet, and they were happy yeah. for the extra fellowship time. Yeah. Uh, that being said, it was years until I was invited back. That was, was going to be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Next time you came there, did you preach longer? Mm-hmm. Um, you said they've all been longer than that, right? Yeah, yeah. That time, I kind of uh, broke the bank the other way, for sure. I was doing <laughs> um, all of the book of Jonah, and then I came back the next week and did all the book of, um, uh, oh, what's the other minor prophet that goes along with Nineveh? Um, uh, Nahum. Nahum. There we yes, go. Yeah. All of the book of Nahum, and they were both pretty pretty full. Uh, wow. So it was a very different thing, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so I want to ask, how have you grown mm-hmm. since then? So you've uh, your sermon length has extended, yeah, but sure. what are other ways that you've um, grown as a Bible teacher since then? I think the, the biggest one, um, you know, when I started teaching the Bible, I had come through a Bible college education, and so I'd had an inductive Bible study class. Okay. Um, but it was somewhere a few years into teaching that I really started to study hermeneutics. Okay. And that had a huge impact on me. And I would say the way that it's impacted me the most is um, that the text itself, wherever I am, is much more formative of the sermon. You know, for a lot of people, homiletics has an implied structure. And then the passage is just the grist for the mill of that structure. And you just fit it in where it goes. But now for me, the structure is, uh, structure is something I look for in the passage and then I, I bring that out. I use that as my outline as it were. Uh, or if, if I'm going through a narrative, I preach very differently than if I'm doing an exposition of one of Paul's letters or things Mm. like that. Um, in the same way, I would say the other place that I've grown and this wasn't really intentional. It just kind of happened. I'm, I'm a puzzle person. I'm a riddle person. I like solving things. I've always been that way. And so I find I leverage tension a lot Hmm. in my preaching. Hmm. I I look for either tension in the text or the text in tension with our culture uh, or the text in tension with another thing. I I don't, like I said, it's not necessarily intentional. It's just, it's how I think through things anyways. And so I tend to drag my audience along with me. And I've grown to really enjoy that because uh, a captive audience uh, is much easier even if it's just a curiosity, even if it's just intrigue, you have yeah. much better attention spans um, up front. So, yeah, that's been a big part for me as well. Okay. Um, how do you find tension? I mean, you mm-hmm. mentioned Jonah. Is this like, where's the tension in Jonah? How, can you show us how to find tension? Yeah. Um, so, I think with the book of Jonah, uh, a good place to illustrate the tension is that you've got you know, God's man, his representative. And he's really the only one in the story who doesn't get it. 
you know, okay. and so you have the the Gentile sailors on their way to Tarshish in the beginning, and they're just so swift to believe. They're hungry for what Jonah has to say. As soon as he explains that this is his fault, they take his advice directly, mm-hmm. uh, and it even mm-hmm. says that they they pay their vows. They become faithful worshippers of Jonah's God. Yeah, uh, and Nineveh is the same thing. Yeah, Repentance do they sacrifice there. Sacrifice to Yahweh as well. Well, it just says that they paid their vows, okay. and so okay. it might not be an ongoing thing. Okay. Um, it's probably not a move away from polytheism, but it's a lot more respectable than Jonah, who is yeah. nothing, who yeah. is actually in rebellion against that God. And the same way with Nineveh, you know, Jonah's message uh, has no option for salvation, but they believe God is more merciful than Jonah is, mm. is ready to mm. believe. Um, but I think the best place to find tension in that book is in the ending, uh, because it's, it just leaves sure. with a question for Jonah and it's left in our laps as well. Yeah. Um, and so it forces us to, to look inward instead of just critically sure. at Jonah. So do you, um, if you were to, to reteach Jonah, mm-hmm. um, so do you start off with those kind of questions do you, or do you allow yeah. them to unfold or? Yeah. It, it kind of depends. Jonah's an odd one because it's, uh, it's narrative, but, uh, but it's got these super enhanced literary features. It's okay. very structured. Okay. You know, it's, it works like a, a play in two acts. And so you start over again at the beginning in chapter three. Mm. Um, mm. and so, uh, so usually what I do in that case is just tell the story. Cause I think that's the other value of narratives. People are drawn into stories. I mean, look at all of the trash we'll put up with on TV until we finally go, you know, I can probably do something better with my time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, so narrative, I think, uh, carries its own thing. And what you want to do is paint the picture well enough so that when you get to the crisis, everybody's invested, mm. you know? Um, but if it's, uh, if it's a text like from Paul's, uh, Paul's epistle, um, and the tension that I'm seeing has to do with, uh, for example, a paradox. Paul is great with paradox. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen mm. when things are created. Mm. Uh, or like I shared with the students t- uh, yesterday at the Bible college, um, he prays that we would know the unknowable love of God. Okay. Yeah. Right. And that's just handed to you on a platter, uh, you know, to, to present, uh, to people and then kind of work around the corners of it. Um, but another one I think is really important, and this is one I push a lot. Uh, everybody who reads the Bible inside and outside the church, I think we tend to put ourselves in the wrong shoes. Sure. And so we're reading through the Gospels, and we put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. Yeah. And it's like, here's an example of a good prayer life or how to help people or these types of things. Yeah, or you faced opposition, haven't you? Right. Look, Absolutely. so has Jesus. Uh, and so <coughs> that's another good place to find tension. I, I spend a lot of time reminding my church that this passage isn't about stupid Israelites. This is human nature. It's all of us. We're all right here. Sure. This is who we are. Um, and I think that creates its own tension because then you have a, a vested interest in God's grace on display because you need it. Mm. You know? Wow. Hey, you mentioned that over the years you've learned and taught yourself about hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how and why? Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty problem uh, solving oriented, like I said. You mentioned, so, yeah. So even though I think one of the primary ways God leads me is through frustration. Okay. And my biblical interpretation method started to just kind of show its weaknesses in my own assessment. Like things weren't making sense. It's like using a tool and realizing it's too dull for the job. And related to that, I was teaching with the Bible college. And so I was starting to be frustrated, not just in my lack of education in this way, but our lack of a good offering of these things. And so... I, and I've done this a multitude of times since then. I put together a book list 
I spent six months deep diving and came out the other side with, with something, you know, and, um, and so there were, there were some really great books along the way that impacted me. Um, uh, uh, Osborne's hermeneutics is, is one of them. It's, it's a little heady in places and it's a little outdated now. That's uh, the hermeneutical spiral. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it just turned me on to so many things. Uh, he introduced me to block diagramming with it, which is this old, uh, tool that anyone would have used in an English class in 19th century, uh, education, uh, but is a pretty good tool for walking through how the prepositions of scripture relate to one another. Mm. Um, and then it was through that, that I discovered arcing, which, um, John Piper has kind of made famous, which is a completely different, but somewhat similar tool. Um, and those things started to change the way that I read scripture. I always think of that scene in the matrix where, you know, it's ones and zeros, but I see a red dress, a blue dress, a blonde, a brunette. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. like that. They become part of you and you read the scriptures differently. And, um, and so something I tell myself a lot when I preach now is show, not tell. I don't just want to tell people what the Bible says. I want to show them how we know what it means, you know, leave them with the tools to find their way again. Okay. Yes, exactly. So you put together a book list. You, you mentioned Osborne's mm-hmm. um, Hermeneutical Spiral as a standout. Any other books for someone who wants to grow? In oh, hermeneutics? brother. There's so we many. I didn't prep you in advance for yeah, this. Yeah, and this is, this is very much the way I am with book lists, too. Like, I never really find the book. I find books that are good in their own focus. Okay. And so there's one from, um, from Faith Life, from Logos, by one of their guys. Um, it's like the the eight lenses. Basically he takes eight different ways to read the scriptures and that's really good. Mm -hmm. Um, Bernard Rams is a lot older and super classic, but I really enjoyed that one. Um, Grasping God's word has become a really common one in classrooms now. And I think that one's really great. Um, Fee uh, reading the Bible for all it's worth is really good for genre. Um, It was quite a few things that I kind of dug together um, all with their own little focal point. Okay. Um, random question. Are you, do you have a current book list? Are you, are you in a deep dive in something oh, right brother. now? Uh, yeah, I'm actually preparing for one. And so, so this sex and gender study that I've been doing, um, right now it's expressed primarily in a class. I've done it as a sermon series, but I'm working on a book. And so I have a second, uh, a second wave of books that have come out since I started this, especially on gender, which, yeah. you know, the last and 30 years, we days, really yeah. only wrote gender books about can women be pastors. Mm. We mm. were just focused on the front lines of the issue, but because of transgender issues, there's been a lot more good thinking and, um, salvaging of small thoughts along the way into holistic systems. So I've got quite a few books there, but my big next study, which I'll start this summer is on, um, the church and politics, Okay, which is another place of frustration. Um, for me, I'm seeing, I, I'm, I'm in Seattle. Uh, it's, it's very liberal and there's so few non-denominational churches. The people who identify as Christians who walk through my doors are from every background you can imagine within the church. And, um, on top of that, I'm seeing some, both some frustrations with the religious right, with some con- conservative approaches, some traditional approaches, and then I'm seeing new solutions presented that are leaning way too heavily on, on one leg or two from Anabaptist perspectives. And I just have this hunch there's something missing in the dark yeah. to be rediscovered. And so that's where my book list is for the uh, summer. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll withhold comment because it's not about my, my <laughs> thoughts on your book list right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, okay. So those are some of the ways that you've improved yeah. since then. Um, I'd love if you could tell us like, how do you prepare a sermon? Yeah. 
what does your like your week of prep look like? Right. Or I suspect longer than a week. Yeah, that's you right. Strike me as someone who plans series, not sermons. Yeah. So getting back to that idea of things that impacted me hermeneutically, one of them was uh, G. Campbell Morgan's The Analyzed Bible. Okay. And it was Morgan who convinced me that the best way to start preparing for a sermon is to know a whole book well. You know, there's so many different layers to a text. You have you have um, the vocabulary. Uh, word by word, you have the semantics of how a sentence goes together. You look at things at the paragraph level and then in the larger sections of a book. But it was it was G. Campbell Morgan who convinced me to start with the book mm-hmm. and then move down and then kind of like a trampoline, get down to the semantics and then bounce wow. up to the biblical canonical uh, context. Um, and so, so I usually annually um, prepare for the year and I have a bread and butter rhythm with our church where we're generally moving through the New Testament every year, book by book, with the Gospels redistributed sure, across. Okay. Wise, wise. Uh, and then we, we pause along the way to make sure we get the other parts of Scripture. So we'll stop for the Old Testament. We'll do an a important topical series. But three quarters of my year is usually in whatever New Testament book we're in. Right now we're doing the Gospel of Mark. And so I have not just um, the whole book broken down for the year, but it broken into sermon miniseries, which are the larger thematic chunks. Um, and so, so that means my sermons are titled, the main ideas are presented, they fit in the context of a larger series before the week-to-week study begins. Sure. And at that point, um, my preparation really depends on the text. I think, I think um, interpreting and preaching a text is a lot like wrestling, and some opponents are just a lot easier to pin. Mm. And so mm. sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, I had an occasion a while ago where I wanted to um, teach on prayer, and it was just kind of placeholder, and my preparation was literally 15 minutes. And that's the advantage of 10 years of teaching and study in all of these areas. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. was, it was stuff I'd stowed in the closet and never used, but yeah. it was ready to go. Yeah. Um, but other weeks, uh, I'll wrestle with a text and, and it'll start with, um, with reading the passage through on one day and just letting it sit in my brain. Then I'll hit commentaries and I'm, I'm a pretty simple guy. There's so much out there to read. And when Logos first started putting out huge sets of commentaries, I was reading, you know, upwards of two dozen commentaries every week. Mm. And it was ridiculous. Mm. Mm. Now I just use bestcommentaries.com, take the top three if I haven't read them and yeah. work through those. So one of my days will just be reading those and jotting down notes. Um, I don't actually teach from notes. Um, uh, and so a major part of my preparation, and this usually happens Saturday night, I'll actually take a bath. And I have a, it's not a waterproof Bible. It's just one. I don't mind getting water damage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I will just m- meditate on the text and process. And it's a little bit different now because now I'm in kind of that subconscious territory where I don't need to. But in the beginning, I would preach quietly to myself. And when I hit a wall or a question or something that bothered me, I'd start over and rerun it. And so mm. by the time I walked mm. into the pulpit... Uh, mentally, I'd already run those paths before. Yeah. Wow. Um, but and the you're re- very clean. Yeah. Well, the, the, the thing, right. It's a, you know, it's socotating that's okay. what I call it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I'm also tremendously introverted. And so that's also prep time for Sundays, which used to just completely wipe me out. Mm. And so this is like filling the tank beforehand. Um, but, but for me, the reason why I don't use notes is because I'm, 
as you can probably catch, relatively obsessive. Mm -hmm. And I found myself working so hard on the notes and mistaking that for the sermon itself. Okay. So I had this tremendously clean, organized document with alliterated points and all these things. Uh, and, and especially in my context and what I'm doing now, um, I really lean heavily into the dialogue aspect of preaching. Um, and, and the hardest dialogue there is because you don't get to hear the other side. You have to guess it. Yeah. And so I don't use notes now so that I have full attention to where my audience is at. I want to see the questions on their face. If, if the spirit is moving, I want to give pause and let that press in or hammer at home or these types of things. Um, and so so I know plenty of people who can preach from their notes into their hearts and out to their audience. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. can't do that. Okay. I go through my notes and out to the audience if they're there. And so I've had to learn to do without. So it sounds like you're preparing things, a lot of it on the computer with Lagos type stuff. So you, you may have a document that you write. Yeah. So it's not, not a document in the terms of an outline or a manuscript yeah. unless the text is really slippery and okay. I'm going to lose my way. You okay. know, I, I give myself the tools I need for the journey. Yes. And so, uh, you know, the clearer it is, the less I'll ever put on paper. Okay. Um, but so that exists on, on the, the, yeah. the paper or the, the laptop and, and then you just take that in your brain into the bath. Yeah. And then out of that bath, you dry off and right. you know what you're going to say tomorrow. Yeah. And, and there's, there's exceptions, you know, um, long quotations. I'll throw in a note file on my phone and pull it out and read it when I need it. Okay. Uh, sometimes I don't pull them out. I just have them, you know, on stock if I decide that that's where I want to go. Uh, I'll jot cross references in the margins of my Bible. Okay. I have a nice wide margin Bible. So there's room for that. Okay. Um, but that's another thing I like about preaching behind the pulpit. I feel safe. Um, but I feel more present if it's just me and a boom mic and you have that full exposure, but you also have your entire body to communicate hmm. instead of just, you know, the, the newsroom yes. top yes. three quarter or one quarter of the body, um, that preaching can sometimes entail. Wow. Well, yeah, my friend Clay Worrell, he mm-hmm. went up uh, in Seattle and he sat in on one of your, or participated in one of your, I think, urban church planting right, or yeah. urban ministry things. And then he talked to me as he came down and said, that was amazing, really great. You got to get this guy, Justin, on the Expositors Collective podcast. Yeah, well, it's been and, really And now I did. And now really I did. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're very unique. And I know why, why Clay endorsed you so heavily. So thank you very much. You're going to go teach a class. Yeah, yeah, I am. Thanks a lot, Mike. Um, appreciate it. This is a handshake. Can you hear it? Okay. Yeah. Um, All right. Thanks for listening. You know, I hope that this podcast and all that we do at the Expositors Collective can really help you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. God bless. God bless.